Hello and thank you for choosing Starting Somewhere, the podcast where you hear from someone in the early stages of their working life to find out how they got to where they are, what they actually do every day, and just to get an honest look as to what your life might look like if you also start out in this area. I'm your host, Michael Watson, and I could not be more excited to introduce our guest today. After achieving her master's in public administration from the University of Delaware in 2019, Wajathuku has worked a variety of jobs in the public, private, and nonprofit sectors. I met Waja while I was working as a field organizer for the Iowa caucus and was instantly blown away by her incredible passion for public service. Today, you'll hear her and I discuss her eclectic path into doing the work that she's doing right now as an engagement manager at Benefits Data Trust, a nonprofit based in Philadelphia, which utilizes the power of data, tech, and policy to improve people's health and build pathways to economic mobility. For anyone interested in the work of campaigns, state and local government, or nonprofits, this is the podcast for you. I would also like to quickly preface by saying that at certain points, you will hear some street noise because she lives in downtown Philadelphia, and there are just some things that we can't control. And really quick, please stick around for the follow-up after our interview, where I will help to unpack some of what we said, explain any technical jargon used, and thank our sponsors. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Waja Thuku. Waja, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for letting me grace your podcast with my um, with my wealth of experiences of <laughs> two years post school. <laughs> Knock it off! Now I'm so excited for this conversation. I'm going to start with the new official first question of the podcast, yes, which yes, yes, is, what did you want to be when you were little? I wanted to be a flight attendant. <laughs> and then my parents were like, bitch, servitude? <laughs> Absolutely not. And then I was like, how about pilot? And then fear of heights. <laughs> sure. So I just, you know, okay. it, it went from... That was the dream was to be um, a flight attendant. And then um, it's devolved. It's devolved since then, you know, a bunch of reality coming in the picture. <laughs> yeah. No, things change once you start, you know, doing stuff. And then you're like, oh, I'm not going <laughs> to yeah, do I'm that. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. Like, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be serving people drinks in the air, nor am I going to be flying this plane. No, it's, it's a lot of time yeah. on a plane that you don't need. No, no. Um, so that was the goal. And then I my most, I guess, recent dream that could have been actualized was an OBGYN because I just like watching mm. birth videos and I was like, I can do that too. I can, I can absolutely deliver babies. And then I took- You, you like watching birth videos? I love watching birth videos. I think that- should, I, I mean- Can we cuss on this podcast? Sure. I think that shit is so interesting. I don't want to partake. It looks, it looks like that, but I want to be- in the process somehow. So I was like, okay, why okay. seems cool. And then I took a couple of bio classes in college and I was like, I don't know, man, that I'm cat was looking kind of crazy. <laughs> and then I knocked it down another notch, you know, I was like, let's be a psychologist. <laughs> let's do that. Yeah. Okay. So that's, so that was going to lead into my next thing. So you attended Delaware state and you got a degree in psychology. What was that decision? Like was, so 
like you were saying, you were thinking about being an OBGYN. At what point during college did you say, you know what, right. let's, let's focus on psychology? I went in being like, I don't know what I want to do, to be honest. I'm one of those people that I wasn't, I didn't grow up with a burning passion for any particular thing, but I can get passionate about just about anything if you give me enough information. So I was like, uh, I think maybe I want to be a teacher. Both my parents are educators and I always thought that was dope. Um, I taught Sunday school. So I was like, I have experience. So, you know, I'm in line for this. And then um, I was going to major in education and I actually had it down as my first major. And then I was like, that's too limiting. I'm going to have to be a teacher. Um, so I was like, let me major in psychology and teach and teach like history or something. And the more I got into the major, I was like, it, it was it, like, it just, the world opened up. It's such an interesting area of study. I got into social psychology because I've always been curious about people and like, what makes us tick? Why do people do things? Why do I do the things I do? And that it answered some of those questions. Um, so I really leaned into the psych thing and I was going to go to grad school for it. And then I did it because <laughs> it's just sort of shit happens. I didn't get into grad school the first round of, um, I did, I did well on the GRE. It was just, it's just one of those years I didn't get in for this, the professors I wanted to study with. I actually, Ohio state was one of my top, was the top really? school. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, I did get in. It was a bummer and I started like doing data collection. I don't know if we're far that into the resume yet. And I was like, man, <laughs> I don't know. I was going around to like schools in like really high need areas and meeting all sorts of people from different walks of life. People that looked like me, but I've never shared the experience. That's Philly for you. Got me interested in like education policy because I was in schools. I was like serving children about like, it was like a sex study. Boy, I've been through some shit. <laughs> My path is winding. This is all over the place. It's all over the place, but it all, I swear to you, it all makes sense. It makes me who I am. Um, so that just made me interested in policy. Like how these people who look like me have such like disparate experiences. I was like, yeah, I, I want to know like how I can make change, not as a on a practical level, but like on a policy level. And then I'm like, what's policy? And then grad school. But if you want to reel me in, we can do that too. Well, so let's, so let's really quick, let me just ask if there was anything that you did in undergrad, whether that was a job, an internship, extracurricular, that kind of, uh, I don't know, I guess, if there was something that you did that maybe sparked something or that motivated you more so, you know, in your career and the future work that you've done? You know, that's a really good question. And I don't think it was any particular thing I learned or any particular experience. I think it was one professor that made a significant difference in my life. Um, I did a lot of things in undergrad. I was part of like really interesting labs, but I just met this one teacher that was like, you're smart. <laughs> and it sounds so corny and like cliche, but that like validation made me want to explore more. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, that's probably been the most poignant thing that I got from undergrad. Cause I 
don't use my degree in any capacity besides maybe social interactions, which I don't know if I even do that well enough. <laughs> so like, you know, but it was like, and her name is Dr. Amy Rogers. I don't think she would mind a shout out. Um, because I believe she probably doesn't even have a phone because she she's that that's her Good vibe. Her. But she just made me believe in myself. She was like, yo, you're hella smart. And I'm paraphrasing. She did not say that. But she was right. like, you're hella smart. Like, you can do anything. And I think that made me curious. Like, oh, let me take the neuropsychology class or whatever it is. Let me ask more questions. And I think that's the most poignant experience and thing I got out of undergrad. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think that maybe every professor, every person thinks that, you know, just the impact or interaction that they can have with one person can make that big of a difference, but clearly it can, right? Like it, it yeah, doesn't take a Yeah, especially at a university or... level where it's like 300 people in one class, like it's, it's hard, also hard to impart. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so then walk us through what it was like obviously you expected to get into grad school in that first application round right like yeah. you, you apply you've worked hard you think you're really interested in this one thing and you want to pursue that and you want to keep going and then that does not work out right. so then walk us through what happened what happened there complete devastation <laughs> no i'm just kidding <laughs> um yeah it was it, it sucked I was so passionate about it because, you know, I, I, I learned enough information. What I wanted to do more specifically was study um, implicit bias. And I mean, that's still something I love, but I was so passionate about it. And there were people doing such great work about it, you know, and implicit bias in medicine and law. And I was so interested. Um, and when I didn't get in, I, I was... Was, I was devastated, but then I was like, okay, solutions have to be found because life won't let me be stagnant because <laughs> it still expects things of me. And I just pivoted. I was like, what, what can I do? What can I do? That's when the data collection entered the chat. A professor of mine was like, you worked in my lab. You know how to do a thing. Why don't you go do that thing and get paid for it somewhat? And then I started looking for other means to go back to school because that always felt like a safe space for me because it's mm -hmm. predictable. I'm one of those people that just likes school because I'm inst institutionalized for X amount of years. I can predict my income for <laughs> that many years. I can predict the struggle. I was like, take me back. So, <laughs> so I was it, looking it to was, go back to school. I guess after the data collection work that you had done, then the idea that you were going to go to grad school was still there. That You, you were still going to do that. You just realized that you had to shift. Or I guess you didn't really have to shift, but you chose to shift focus into go to grad school, but for something else. Yes. It's not as linear or as focused as I'm making it sound. I scrambled after not getting in the first time. I gave up on a PhD because I still don't have my PhD. I went, I went back for a master's degree. I was like, I just need to do something to not be doing nothing, which in retrospect, and we can talk more about that, I think was a terrible decision. Um, don't advise it. You will <laughs> be miserable. What was your fear of doing nothing? Like where, what was the, what was that worst case scenario for you? If you didn't have school, you know, maybe you had a job, but it wasn't a job, obviously that, you know, yeah. you really cared that much about what was the, what was the biggest fear of that situation for you? So I am, a, throughout my whole life, I've been fairly high achieving. 
that my value is so tied to that that I know it's toxic as fuck but I know my value is tied to producing a certain amount of thing and there's also a cultural component like being in an African household and not doing the most and not producing to your highest level is just not acceptable like even it's just not it's just not even now my mom is like so when are you going back to you for your PhD it's just there was that like cultural pressure to just be doing something you did then uh, you know you inevitably found something that you liked you started working in data collection what did that job look like oh my god i found something that i like let me tell you what it looked like it looked like dragging 30 laptops in like a laptop case throughout the mountains of pittsburgh the hills of pittsburgh to go to these schools in really secluded ass places um and like meeting kids after in their after school activities and being like you guys want to take a survey for me? That's what that looked like. <laughs> Kids, what age? Was, huh? What age students are we talking here? Um, the 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 age of children that scare you as an adult because they're like early high school, so they're just like Yikes. getting that meanness in. Yep. It's just soaking in. Yep. Horrifying, <laughs> horrifying. After leaving college and like. There are no bullies anymore. It took me back. I was like triggered. I was like, I could trample over these kids, but I'm shook right now. <laughs> and I was like, I can't do this long term. You don't want to mess with those mountain kids. Come on. Oh my God. You can't mess with the no. Pittsburgh children. They, they, they're mm -hmm. like coal miners in the morning. They'll fuck you up. <laughs> Famously. Famously, you can't mess with them. Yeah. So that's what that looked like. They were like, the assignment would change. They'd be like, oh, you're going to Pittsburgh this week. And then the next week you're going to like Ohio. The next week you'll be in Pennsylvania. It was unpredictable. It was such, it was the most random job I've ever had. Did you like traveling though? Did you like getting to see new places? I, I had to, I had to, most of the places, um, they had me on the East coast. So I would drive and then they would put me up in like some, some hotel by myself. I never got to see the places. I like, no, I didn't. I thought I would. I was like, oh my God, this is glamorous. But I ended up being at like a Holiday Inn somewhere in some like small ass city randomly, man. It was, and also like, I'm a woman by myself carrying like all these laptops that I, I couldn't drag. It was wild times, man wild times <laughs> i literally could not imagine <laughs> i have i have no concept for that job that's that's yeah. insane um yeah i try to block it from my memory okay man. so then i definitely understand the allure of grad school after doing that full-time i de it's just yeah. safety at this point right physical safety right it's being able to say i know that i'm going to be in one place that i know for the next two years and i will just be here yeah yeah. So you went and you got your master's in public administration from the University of Delaware. Go hens. Yeah. Uh, which I famously Googled while at the orientation. <laughs> That's how I picked which one. Please explain that. Well, I just, I came, I'm a psych major. What do I know about policy? I'm trying to be a practitioner, man. And then I went, I was like, I'll go to your open house. And there was like <laughs> MPA. M.A., me Googling the difference. M.P.A. sounds the closest to what I want to do while in the session. 
that's a big decision just to be making at the the Hugh Dell open house. If if you go survey some coal miner kids, you'll jump anywhere at that point. Sure. Which one sounds the best? Done deal. <laughs> like, Sold. Yeah, I was like, MPA, man. I like it. I'm going to work in a nonprofit that one day. That would be cool. <laughs> Let's talk about grad school then, because I feel like that is something that at least all of my friends post-undergrad have had that thought or that question asked. Are you going to go to grad school? Yeah. Do you want to? Is there something that you know you want to stay in school for? So Yeah. What what was your experience in in grad school like? There are two. Ex- there, I feel like was one experience, and depending on the lens of which you look at it, two different sort of things. Um, I'm I'm being a little, ex- you know, exaggerating on the happenstanceness of it, but it was really purposeful. I really cared about policy. I want to make changes in the lives of black people, but more specifically, black women. I really care about that. And I felt like this was the biggest, this was the way I could do it at the mass level, like, you know, at a macro level, so to speak. So grad school helped me do that. I learned so much. I have meaningful conversations. I understand the plight more, and then I'm able to orient solutions that way. Personally speaking, grad school was a shit show. Professionally speaking, it was great. I learned so much. The experiences are so rich. It, like I, there's not a day since grad school I haven't used it. Like I haven't used the information and the experiences. But um, like we said earlier, I went on. A, I just need to not be doing nothing, or at least not be collecting data, which um, kind of felt like nothing sometimes because you don't see, you don't see the results of the study, you don't see who it affects, right? So it felt like nothing to me. Um, but personally, going on 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 that sort of agenda of like, I just need to be doing something was miserable because I was sort of feeling in the dark for a purpose. It's so much easier to go through bullshit when you know what you're reaching for. I had no idea what I was reaching for. Um, and that starts to affect you personally. I was like, dude, I'm in here. I'm learning so much. And then what? Like, am I just here to collect information? Could have done that at home. <laughs> So you just touched on your want to make a substantial change specifically in the lives of black women. Do you think that is also informed not only by your own experiences and identity, but also from what you were talking about in your household of wanting to do the most of wanting to say, if I am going to go, you know, do something, if I am going to go work in some, you know, aspect of service, of giving back, right. that you might as well go and do the thing that you feel like you need to do most, and there's really no compromise on that? I've never thought of it that way, and you just blew my mind. Perhaps. Um, perhaps. <laughs> maybe Maybe that's why I feel like, why couldn't have I done it at a micro level? Why couldn't I have been a practitioner? I'm sure I could have. I don't, I'm not, you know, I can build a passion about anything. Um Maybe, maybe in part. I was like, okay, I'm going to be in the public sector, which already is sort of looked down upon. Um, Maybe I'm projecting onto the culture, but it's not as high. No, I feel that. Yeah. Right. Yielding an income. I am going to do it to the highest level I can. Perhaps, perhaps maybe there, maybe there's that. But I was also, I I, I don't have any illusions about what the one-on-one can do. You know, I think it's, Maybe too small for me, but hey. So you finish grad school 
And then what are you doing after that? I graduate, right? So in the, in, while in grad school, I had two amazing, amazing internships. They were paid. Pay your interns if anybody's listening to this and has some sort of power. It's a lot of free labor, yep. man. This podcast endorses paying your interns. Please, 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 please. Uh, had two amazing internships. Um, and then after grad school, I was back in the same position. Quite frankly, I was after undergrad of like, what now? had a really hard time finding work. I just, the jobs I found didn't want to pay me or because you're too qualified, which is like absurd, right? If I'm applying for a job that's lower than what you're asking for, just whatever. Um, yeah, just take the the the, the higher achieving employee. <laughs> yeah, just take like, the person that's more qualified. On. Yeah, like I, I I saw the salary when I applied. You don't you don't think I saw that? Um, which is so silly. So I was I was I couldn't find work. It was absurd to me. It was absurd. That's where we met. I was in Iowa. I was like, I don't have a fucking job. Yeah. Like I go to Iowa and you know do what the Middle Western mid Midwest is it Midwest Midwest. Yep. Yeah. I'll do what the Midwesterners do. Just couldn't find work. It was really hard. The field, I felt like, was saturated. I was just stuck again. I was back to being stuck. I was like, what's the point? <laughs> so I went to school, got this degree, and I'm stuck again. But then something came through with, like, one of my contacts from school. I was like, this is a job in a nonprofit in Delaware. That's really cool. You want to do the data? You've done that before. <laughs> and so I went back and sort of started back on the journey to, you know, sort of finding my way again. And so was this the was this the legislative fellow job at the state of Delaware? No, that was during that was during grad school. Okay. That was one of my internships at the legislative fellow in the conflict resolution program, which I phenomenal experiences, but hard to continue when you're not a student because they try to source from students. Can we just talk a little bit about that? So your experience as a legislative fellow at the state of Delaware while you were in grad school, what kind of work were you doing? Like what, what kind of, you know, impact were you able to make with that? So I was doing legislative research and also staffing committees, five of them. It's a small assembly. It's like Delaware. And you actually, it's not bullshit work. You're doing the work for um, the committees that you're for, you're working for. Really, really another experience, another work experience that I daily use, like legislative research is a big part of my job now, learning how to read, like how people write bills, which more complicated than it should be, really. Um, Oh, well, well, that's on purpose. But can you... Truly, truly. Yeah. So what was that work day to day like? Like, what were you actually doing as, you know, legislative research? Yeah, there would be like... Uh, you know, maybe Delaware is trying to expand this. It would be a silly sometimes. I don't want to say silly, but it would be like a mailman got bit and we need to reform the code of like <laughs> what happens with that? Like, what are the consequences? How can they stop the mail route legally? What's, <laughs> what, are, what is Maryland doing about that? And sometimes it'll be like, they're trying to legalize marijuana. What's, what's, how, what are the impacts? Right. So like big or small really depends on the day, but doing that research and you would, sometimes you would see it turn into a bill or at least for other people. <laughs> my, my, my dog right. thing got resolved in the code. It's fine. The the mailman doesn't have to go to that route anymore. All good. Good for him. I am a hero. You know, I found it in the code. <laughs> um, and you know, the other part was staffing committees. 
And so I was like the government accountability committee, they would be, I would print for them what bills they had up for discussion. I would take their meeting notes. I would put it on the state website, what happened in the committee, stuff like that. Like really practical day-to-day shit that needs to get done. But also like for me, like gave me an insight on the legislative process. You know, I got to meet like the, the, the people who keep the bills in the library and the lawyers who drafted and, and, and stuff like that. So that was, that was the day-to-day. Would you say that that was a really validating experience, given that you obviously had an interest in policy before taking that job? Was that something where you thought, okay, I actually enjoy the work of this. I'm on the right track with grad school a little bit. Like, did that, did that give you any more confidence while you were in school? So validating and validating in the sense that it, it made policy less abstract. Like, I, once you see how the sausage is made, you're like, oh, you know, then you can see how you can insert yourself in that process. You know, I got to, you know, when I'm taking these meeting notes for this committee, I'm seeing the advocates come in. I'm seeing how the legislators are talking about this behind the scenes. I'm seeing the kind of impact that makes. Um, I'm seeing what budget hearings, how does that matter? I got to see the behind the scenes of that too, being like the legislative process is not some like mysterious thing. I see it. And I, I can sort of see my place in it. And I ultimately decided that like, it's not the political route. It's not for me. Like, But I the advocates really like stood out to me and these nonprofits that would come in and testify and be like, this is the work we're doing. This is the amount of dollars we need to do to do it. And that was really impactful for me. I was like, I got, I, you know, got to see it up close and demystify it quite a bit. Yeah, no, that sounds like it would be at least especially given that you were in a place where you thought you were going to go into something and then you didn't. And then, you know, you're traveling around the mountains of Pennsylvania and then you go to grad school again for that security. And then that, you know, reaffirmed that. So um, definitely seems like it was a really positive experience for you. So now let's flash forward into the two simultaneous jobs that you had uh, working with the state of Delaware. So this is after you graduate from grad school, you know, you already kind of touched on it that you were feeling a little lost. Mm -hmm. Then walk us through into that, in that next job that you got. Yeah. Um, to be honest, I was like, I had gotten to a point of like anything, anything will do. Um, I'd interviewed for a bunch of jobs, nothing really, you know, stuck. Um, and then I got an offer to my official title was data analyst for the Wilmington Community Advisory Council, um, which is a small nonprofit that really evolved, ended up working in the social determinants of health for a youth population in Wilmington. And it was really, it was really good work. They were on the ground, the, the sort of they're building from the ground up. So got to see that process literally helped apply for them to become an official nonprofit. So really, again, another experience where I got to see you know, the behind the scenes of everything. Um, And nonprofits are really complicated. The funding is not straightforward. And they had to get funding from the state to fund my position. And the state was like, what are we getting out of it? (laughs) And then the council was like, "Uh, I guess, why are you? (laughs) I guess you'll get her. So I was splitting my time doing data for the state as well. So I was doing 20 hours with the state as a data analyst with the Department of Health and Human Services. And then 20 hours with the council doing, 
data, but it really transitioned to be like whatever they needed. And did you say that you found those jobs through a uh, connection from school? Yeah. The first, the Wilmington Community, the WECAC for short, was through a connection from school. They just like send it in like some, maybe an alumni network or somebody knew I was looking for a job and they just like straight up emailed me and were like, this, I think you'd be good for it. I think that's how I found that job. Was that weird? Was that weird having one job and then being told, okay, by the way, now you have to split your time between us and another thing that you were not at all expecting to do? So bizarre. It was so bizarre. Yeah. Um, And it wasn't, it wasn't a light lift either. Like I was the project manager for uh, a study that had to do with like COVID. And then the state wants me to do uh, data analysis for uh, a financial literacy program. So like, this is not 20 hours, 20 hours. So that was, that was, that was hard. That was also confusing of like, how do you state your worth? at this point when we're in the middle of a pandemic and you also need secure employment, but like you're being pulled in too many directions and I had to go in person for the state job and there was all these COVID outbreaks. It was, it was, it was hard. Yeah. I was going to say, so you started both jobs or you, so you started the first job and that was pre COVID. Right. And then obviously, you know, the pandemic hits how did that affect, did that affect your job at all? I mean, you said you were just still going in person on, on some things, but uh, how did the how did the pandemic affect the work that you were doing? It substantially shifted. So the council job was 100% remote before. We don't have offices. There were, again, there was still sort of on the ground running. We didn't, it was fine. And then here comes the state job. They're giving me the funding and, you know, at this point benefits and they were like you have to be in person because we want our data to be on these like secure networks or whatever the case may be legitimate or not i had to go in person which was so scary in the middle of a pandemic um it was like um it was a servicing building which means that we're still taking clients of people who want to apply for benefits people who want to secure employment for themselves so there was that exposure. Um, I locked myself in an office all the time, but like, it was really scary. Um, and I, you know, I don't envy essential employees and I, my hats to them more and like pay people what they deserve. Cause that shit is really scary. And I was doing it pretty low stakes of where I was wearing a mask and could lock. I had the privilege of locking myself in an office, but that's not everybody's experience. Essential work was absolutely a title given um, to make people feel a lot better without uh, it seemed like a lot of management level people actually, you know, yeah. doing anything to substantially improve those conditions of those people. Um, yeah. Yeah. If you call somebody essential, like pay them. Yeah. And, like they are essential. Insane. So. You, you talked a little bit about the different kinds of projects that you were working on between both jobs. What, you know, like day to day were you really doing? A lot of spreadsheets, a lot of spreadsheets on the state side, as you can imagine. I was actually sort of doing data for them. Um, and then with the council, we got this study funded by like NIH and they were like, oh, we need somebody to project manage it. So I was project manager for that. So making sure we have the sites, making sure we have the contracts done, making sure we have like our documents correct with the IRS. That's what the day-to-day looks like was chaos. It was not organized chaos. 
was there a lot i would assume but you know please tell me was there a lot of like on the job training because it doesn't really seem like those are things that you, i mean no classes that i have ever taken or known about like would necessarily prepare you for those things so how did you learn how to do that or were you just learning on the fly dude it was like sink or swim you know they throw at you and tell you have to do project management. I did some in doing my internships, or at least have watched people do it enough to be like, I think I've, I know what it is. Google's your friend too, you know, <laughs> like you do that. Like you just, yeah. you have to make shit happen. Um, so you, I use the resources I had, my network. I have many friends who actually do project management. So I'd be like, bro, how does one do that? Um, Google. Google, honestly, goes a long way and just not being afraid to ask questions, just ask questions of anybody really who would answer them. I had to learn a lot on the job. It's not something I was like hard trained on, but knew enough about to at least ask the right questions. Yeah. I mean, it definitely doesn't seem like that's the kind of job that has a, like, like I don't know how one learns how to do that unless you do that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like it's one of those kinds of gigs. I, I feel like that's most work. Like who yeah. is perfectly, if and if you major in history and you become a history teacher, you still have to learn how to deal with people and whatever other things that you just have to learn. I, I don't know what life experience or what education can properly train you for any position. I think you just have to do it. That's kind of what I'm like finding as well, um, and it's super surprising. Is it reassuring though? Uh, it is and it isn't because I feel like you know if I mean it seems like maybe like engineering jobs and like if you went into medicine like actually being a doctor like those like the reason right. the school is so intense is because like that's the job, so you need to know how to do that. Right. I don't want someone who's building rockets, you know, to like be learning on the job. You know what I mean? I don't know, Mike. I feel like you could show up to a hospital and put on a gown and go, stat, PCP2, and something would happen. I don't know. I've watched enough Grey's Anatomy. I think I could pull that off. I mean, the, the wheels would fall off eventually. But <laughs> I, I think that it is comforting in the sense that for every other job that isn't those things, at least initially, you're kind of just figuring it out. Yeah. And everyone has their own, you know, specific interpretation of the job and the work. And that's obviously influenced by a billion different things. Right. But I think it has been comforting to realize that, oh, no, everyone's just, they're, they're just making it up oh, yeah. and they're passing it off as, sure, this is how you do it. Yeah. When, you know, at, at, at the same time, that's just them validating it to themselves. Like, yeah, <laughs> I know what I'm doing. No, like the attitude um, is... And maybe I only talk about this with other people, but the attitude is like, I just have tried to embody the attitude of an average white man. Sure. I can do it. I don't know. I've never heard of it before. I got this, you know? Like, isn't the statistic like 80, they apply for 88% of jobs are not qualified for? That's, that's my vibe these days. I'm like, I can do it. I can figure it out. I think everyone should apply for every job. Yeah. <laughs> like honest to God, what like you really have nothing to lose. You just, really just don't. apply to them. It's either yeah. a rejection or an opportunity to learn. Yeah, and and like if the worst thing that happens is that you have a terrible interview, then you have a terrible interview, and that hopefully could just be a good story. 
But then also, yeah. I promise you'll never make those mistakes again in another interview. So yeah, you just it, you're practicing your interviewing skills. I think that's the way to look at it. You can't lose from trying. And I I tell that now I tell people that all the time. Like if you think you can do like most of the things on the thing uh, on the whatever whatever they put out. What is this? Uh, you know when you're applying job boards. Yes. If you think you can do most of it and you think you're smart enough to figure it out, like, bro, we're all out here making it up. You can figure it out. If you can read and write, you you got your golden and can do simple math. Yeah. You're fine. Simple math is so valuable. And I had no idea. (laughs) Simple math, or at least take an Excel crash course, man. They'll do the math for you. Oh my God. Excel is so important. I did not know how important I hate because I hated Excel and that's just not my thing. And in college, I completely avoided it as much as possible. And then in every job I've had so far, it has been essential. (laughs) I've not been able to have the job without it. And I, and it's, and I've been, they've been jobs in politics. Like I'm not expecting those to be (laughs) like you. I I never thought, Oh, I'm going to need to really rely on Excel. Never thought that. Yeah, so if anybody hears this and wants to learn just one thing, it's like learn Excel. At least you can you can fake it till you make it for a longer time with Excel. Even if just learn that. <laughs> like it yeah. does a lot of things for you. You'll need it in every sector. And I, I've mm-hmm. clearly from this podcast I've beep bopped quite a bit. You'll need it for data collection. <laughs> you'll need it for when you're working in a psych lab, you'll need it. You'll just just do Excel. It's a pain in the ass, but just learn it. So before I touch on the work that you're doing now, I just would like to note that you do have some campaign experience as well, um, which I don't think that a lot of. No, it's real, though. It is. A, you have real campaign experience as a, oh, yeah. as a deputy field director. Sure do. On a on a state Senate primary campaign. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people, or I don't know how many people realize this or not, but the people that work on campaigns and the people that work on the legislative side are typically two different groups of people. Um, So it is a little weird, at least, especially in the beginning of, you know, someone starting out in either field to have, you know, kind of jumping around between the two. Can you just talk a little bit about, you know, what what you learned from your campaign experience and then you know i'm sure that you noticed uh yeah. a substantial amount of differences between working in a campaign yeah. and working on the the governance side of things yeah um campaign side is real loose real fast and go there <laughs> like, it is so I, loose it's real loose um Real loose in the sense of like actually the type of people that tend to work on the campaign side are real loose, Mikey, like you. <laughs> <laughs> I I think I just learned about you know what I can say about campaigns that I learned was like don't take yourself too seriously. I can't speak for the for the hard skills and the long ass hours and the and the like interpersonal shit that you guys are willing to go into there but i learned not to take myself seriously i was like nothing matters because i again i got to see like politicians being actually themselves and i was like oh guys nothing matters (laughs) just (laughs) just just do you man um 
Yeah, campaign was, it was really fun. It was really fun. And I, I have an appreciation of people that can do that because the hours are long. The work is unpredictable. The the people are unpredictable. I think all of you guys should have psych degrees, to be honest to God, just to deal with each other and your candidates. Um, that's Maybe that's the only time I've ever used my psych degree, was trying to be like, what the hell are these people like thinking? Like, bruh, this is not sane. Um, but campaigns, don't take, I learned not to take myself too seriously. It's okay to crack a beer at work, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Don't do it anymore. Don't do it anymore. Um, but campaigns, what a time. So, okay. But while you were doing campaign work, and I'm also counting, you know, work adjacent to people in your life who are working on campaigns, because yeah. if you live with someone who's working on a campaign, you're also on a campaign, the whole house is doing campaign yeah. work. That's, yeah. that's just Horrible. the deal. Horrible. Yes. So you have, uh, through that, you've gotten to move around a little bit. Like you said, you've been in Iowa, you've been in Kansas city, yeah. uh, Pennsylvania, Talk a little bit about what the moving around was like for you, because, you you know, you obviously weren't doing the campaigns full time in all of those yeah. places, but you also got to, you know, do work from or you got to work from home in all of those yeah. places and then you just got to live in those cities. So what was, you know, what was the opportunity to move around and live in different places? What's that been like for you? Yeah, I will say uh, to say I did not work. I was the, I was a Super Bowl everywhere I fucking went. You better believe no, it. No, I know. I was a team leader. I was doing Sunday, Saturday morning calls. Okay, um, it was it was really nice. I think I have a nomadic nature to me, so it was just fulfilling. Like. Uh, my ancestors were proud when I was not in one place for too long. Um, got to meet really cool people everywhere that I don't think those, I mean, I would just never be in the same room as some of those people, just demographically speaking. Um, I have no business in Iowa um, and I will never have business in Iowa again. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> campaigns do that to you. They take you to places where, my black ass did not need to be knocking doors in Cedar Rapids or whatever the hell. Like, come on, come on. That's silly, Mike. <laughs> yeah. You were in some, you, I, I know exactly where you were. You were in some very rural parts of the Cedar Rapids area. Yeah. Um, places where I did not always feel the safest at times. So I could not imagine um, yeah. what it was like for you to be out there. So campaigns taught me, one survival skills sure. <laughs> straight up um how to you know how to run when people's dogs just go awry <laughs> but also how to cope with different and strong personalities and maybe i'm painting with a broad brush here but people that work campaigns are passionate and they are just intense people and i'm with one so i know that's not that's not a standout. Y'all are just like that. And I'm, I'm you know, what? I'm happy to paint with this broad brush. Y'all are, y'all are intense. Well, I think in just, it, it touches a little bit on what you said earlier about how when you were in grad school, it was really tough. And it was especially tough because you didn't have the clearest picture of what you were going to do after. Right. So you're doing incredibly difficult work and you don't necessarily have a finish line in mind. Right. So while you're, you know, in the weeds in that, you're just thinking, 
why am I doing this? Like, yeah. I know that it's the right thing. I know that this is good, but I have no idea. And at least what I have learned in working campaigns is that you you kind of ask yourself that question almost every single day and God, every single tough day. Yeah. Um, but the reason that people stay is because they actually have a reason for being there. I mean, yeah. you, you don't want to knock on every door that you have to knock on. Yeah. Like, that's just, it's not a, you, I have never met anyone. And if they tell me that they do, I think that they're lying because I, I can't imagine it. But I Straight could up, not, not imagine. Homing. Not homing. <laughs> I just could not imagine <laughs> any person who genuinely wants to walk up to. 50 strangers doors yeah. in a place that you have no idea in a place you're you know in some instances not supposed to be and talk to them about their personal you know political values yeah you you don't want to do that every single day 50 times like that that's just not a thing that you like you can lose passion on that really easily but in my experience it was you know you you continue doing that because there's something much bigger or much broader that you're there for because otherwise you're right. It gets way too hard. And then you say, this is ridiculous. Why am I putting myself in this kind of position? The rejection alone, like it feels if, and I, and you know, I want to hear your experience, but to me, every time I knocked on a door that was like a negative door, it felt like, an attack on my personal values because I gave a shit, you know, like, obviously we were trying to get Trump like out of here. It felt like you're looking at me and being like, no, yeah, you know, like your personal values and why this matters to you. No. And like, I can't imagine that also being tied to like your, your goals and like your work performance. Like, how was that for you? I mean, I, I don't think it's an easy situation. At least I did not find it easy that someone can just look at you from 50 feet away and without yeah. listening to you, without having any type of interaction, just on them seeing that you are wearing a specific pin or T-shirt, they will autom like. I have had people automatically like very seriously shut things down just by seeing me at yeah. the door, you know, like I have this perfect memory of a house in Vinton, Iowa, and it was, I was not having the best day as most days in Iowa were not the best days. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, this woman had like one of those like, you know, kind of outside front doors and then uh, a full front door mm -hmm. and the outside one was made of glass and that one was closed, but the actual front door was open so you could see into the house and which is I hate that like as someone I understand, I hate when I can just be seen from the entire house and I hate that I can see in because it feels yeah. like a violation. Like I know I'm not supposed to be there. I don't like when I can see all your stuff. Um, because I know that people yeah. don't like it. I know that people don't want me standing there. So I, you know, uh, do the doorbell and instantly this woman turns the corner and like in the very back of the dining room, it looked yeah. like she just starts frantically waving her arms and screaming the word no and just repeating no, yeah. no, no. And yeah. just like waving her arm. I mean... Like, I don't even know what I could have been doing else that would have elicited that kind like of response. Being shooed just away. by having, and I, I think I was wearing my Biden sweatshirt that day. So, just by having that sweatshirt on, 
I got that reaction of a woman yeah. that like could not imagine me standing on her front steps anymore. Damn. And like, yeah, that's not, you know what I mean? Like that definitely wears on you. And yeah. I, I did not think that it was always great. But at the same time, yeah. I, like you said, I was not there for myself. I was not, I was not there for Joe Biden. I was there so that the current president would lose. I mean, that was, like, that yeah. was the whole thing. And on the days that got really tough, that's all I would think about it because you know yeah. if you are thinking yeah. about trying to keep yourself safe or trying to keep yourself happy you quit after the first week oh yeah it's so uncomfortable it's oh my gosh also i think you go into negative financially but that's a different thing um <laughs> you can elaborate on that you've had more personal experiences with that but another question i had on campaigns and i always i ask people this like i i'm so um, results driven, how do you work every day knowing that there's a built-in huge percentage that it could mean jack shit at the end of the day? Like how, how does that like affect your psyche? Meaning that like I could go out, spend 12 hours working as hard as possible, things go really terribly. And then at the end of the day, because things went terribly, none of it mattered. Yeah. Like, or you do that and like, it, it, it takes, I think in in consequential things and your mission is uh, awry. Your candidate says something silly, and like that. Which, when you work for Joe Biden, I mean, I love the man. I'm happy that he's president. Gap machine. When you work for Joe Biden, there's a great chance he's gonna say something, and then you think, oh, <laughs> <laughs> damn. <laughs> right. So, like, first of all, with that, with that. A running thought in your head of like, oh man, don't even check that political alert. If you see Biden, just shut it down if you're knocking doors. But like, there's a built-in, like you're gonna lose. It's it's a winners and losers game politics. Like, how do you deal with that looming, you could be the loser today aspect of it? So I was talking to my one of my friends about this, just in the idea that I think the core reason of almost everyone that I've met that does like either political work or public sector work, you know, work that they would consider service to some level. Um, you're doing that out of the core value of thinking that you want to be creating some type of positive change or you want to be leaving some type of positive impact in the community, wherever, right. and that, you know, can scale up. With campaigns, what has drawn me to them so far not just in the fact that like when I got my first campaign job like when I got that Biden job I did not know that I was going to like it I did not know that I was going to walk away with that experience and say oh wow I want to keep working in campaigns for you know at least the immediate future yeah I just took it because I had been unemployed for like five months after graduating from college right. and like I was going to jump at the first full-time job that I said oh yeah this could be cool yeah so the like the fact that it was a campaign in Iowa that that just fit under that that was just like oh cool early on it was really tough yeah. to separate my self-esteem at work from like with the difference being results and effort because for me, it was really, really tough at the beginning because, like you said, the hours are crazy and, you know, you're kind of putting yourself out there in a much more 
uh, public way than a lot of other jobs. It got really hard at the beginning dealing with all of that, you know, negativity and things not working out because I was not very good yeah. at organizing when I first started. And I feel like I spent the first three months just asking myself the question, like, what am I doing? Like, what am I actually doing out here? But then I, once I started to like it and once I started to feel like I had a handle on the job, mm -hmm. that's when I really enjoyed the competition aspect of it so that so what you're talking about the mm. every single day you know that you could wake up and like things really not work out for you and you just kind of have to like you just make yeah. your peace with that and then you go on about your day and I actually like that just because I realized that you know it was a great way for me to do something competitive like it, like I just really enjoy that um yeah so like i thought that it was a great way to just say okay you know things are probably going to be really hard for me today but if i can have a really great day that would be awesome and i'm going to go try really hard to have a great day yeah. but then when it didn't how i got over that and how i got you know through the the bad days and the unsuccessful days was just you know making the separation of did i actually try to do everything that i could to be really good at my job today and if i could answer yes yeah. then like yeah, then the reason the things didn't work out was just for a number of reasons, which are all incredibly valid, I thought. Yeah, and outside of your control. Yeah. But, and, you know, and I just, I'm now I'm just curious. Did you make it a competition to keep sane enough to stay? Or was that the nature of the job? You know, like, did you just try to make it as palatable as possible to justify staying? Or was it an actual part of the job, the competition part? I mean, I feel like there were times at different points in that job in Iowa from when I started in August to the caucus in early February where it wasn't just me, but, yeah. you know, other coworkers were thinking, oh, I'm just going to leave right now. Like, <laughs> this is just this is just over. But for me, once I hit that point of because I also really wanted to be there to learn and to have a full time mm -hmm. job, because my alternative was going back to being unemployed like I had been for six yeah. months. And I really did not like I had really gotten tired of that. So I already knew that going in that whether the job was great or not I was going to have the job and I was going to stick it out mm -hmm. so that I had kind of already yeah. made the decision that but then once I you know started to have those feelings and once I had those conversations with other people that are thinking that they are going to leave mm -hmm. um at that point for me I just felt like it was a it was a sunk cost thing like I had been there for too long I had spent too many hours <laughs> there that I was at least going to stay yeah through the caucus. I actually got a job offer yeah. to join a different campaign in another state like the week before caucus day. And they and yeah. I, and when they gave it to me, I told them, "Well, you're not expecting me to leave like now, are you?" Yeah. And they said, "Oh, no, yeah. We would want you here by Sunday with the caucus being right. on I think Tuesday." That's wild. Yeah, and I said... When did you apply for this job? When you were in the thick of it here? Well, I was more so looking after because I did not okay. know if I was going to stay after with the with the team that I was on. 
Um, but a friend of mine was on that team and I had, I had told him that, that I was looking for, you know, potentially other things. Mm-hmm. And it was his boss that made me that offer and wanted me to leave like that Damn. weekend. And it, and I was wow. like, there's, there's absolutely no way I'd have to, I'd be a sociopath if I did that. Have you ever heard of the sunk cost fallacy, my guy? <laughs> <laughs> no, Something I know. I live by now, but like, mm. I know. But it like it got to a point to where also at the end, and this is going back to the competition thing, I saw the other teams that seemingly were spending more money and seemingly doing better, at mm-hmm. least based on my conversations of voters at doors. Yeah. And there were also more people in my region on other teams, uh, which I think kind of really fueled my fire of, you know, if I'm going to be the only person on this team that's out here, I also want to beat all of these other teams that have more staff than just one person. Mm. Wow, wow, Mike, the, the competitiveness is deep here. It also, is. I mean, you ended up ultimately backing the right horse, but Jesus Christ, you really went full send. At, at that time, um, it was really questionable whether that was the right horse or not. I, my eyebrows were raised, I can tell you that. Not in secret either. Nope. I was just like, oh, oh. Well, good for you guys. Um, keep that, keep that, keep that energy. Well, we're not, okay, we're not talking about me anymore, though. This is ridiculous. This is absolutely no, insane. We're talking, I'm talking about you so again. Interesting. I'm just asking questions I've always been curious about. That's fine. I'm happy to talk. So let's talk about what you're doing now. Yes. As engagement manager for partnership cultivation. What does that mean? A mouthful. That's mouthful. so much. Doesn't even need to be that many words. Um, what I need to say about this, this, this has ended up being my most purposeful and qualified position. Um, and I'm 26. Uh, so I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't know what the normal trajectory of most people's journey is, but for me, it feels right. It feels like a dream job for me right now. I'm doing something that directly benefits the population I care about and I want to affect. It takes advantage of all my skill set that I have learned formally, informally, or pretended. Not for this job. I did not pretend for any of my skills. It actually just <laughs> enhanced all the skills that I've, you know, had to had to quickly learn in past positions. And it's it's a really cool job. I do research on state legislations and get in there with their state agencies, see what their budgets are like. And we just try to expand our model. The, our core business is trying to make benefits access as simple as possible. We help people apply for benefits, which um, if anybody listening has ever had to, it's more complicated than it needs to. And the people that it's complicated for are the people it should be simplest for. Yep. And we just help people do that on the phones. We get people on the phones and we get all the way up to the signature. Um, They just have to answer questions and we just make it easy to get the things people rightfully deserve. You know, Um, it shouldn't be impossible to get food benefits in the middle of a pandemic. It it shouldn't be rocket science to apply for Medicaid. Um, I'm fairly educated and I think I can figure shit out, but I've had to be on public benefits before and it was not simple. Um, the applications are complicated. The, the interviews you have to go to, I had the resources. I had like a car. Um, 
it's really hard and I'm, I'm passionate about helping the people I care about and super, super dope that I found a company that's like um, an organization, it's a nonprofit that is like, we want to simplify this for people. Um, and that's what I do on a day to day is trying to get our model into more states because a lot more states need this service. How did you find this job? Um, a friend. <laughs> Keep your connections, guys. Uh, I still, I've lost all my, um, filters during quarantine. I randomly sing eating the in work meetings, Mike. That's great. But that's, no, I love that's it. neither here or there. Yeah. A friend works for them and was like looking at the job description and was like, one, you already do this so you can do this. Um, and two, it's a company that you can grow in cause they're surging and you know, their model is obviously effective so a friend just saw it and was like this is really dope and had been eyeing them too i try to keep on you know i try to know what the industry is doing because i work in a nonprofit sector so i knew about them and was like they're doing something really cool but none of the positions made sense for me because they were all data positions and i was trying to leave that that title i don't want to do any more data i don't make it a secret i tell everybody i interview for i will not do your data um i will interpret it like I can use it to inform my work, but I will never do data again. I swear. That's a promise. Yeah. So a friend saw the position and I already knew the nonprofit. I thought they were really cool. And she was like, dude, apply. Like you already do this stuff and you can do it in Philly. I was trying to also move from Delaware because once you've seen all two sides of it, uh, the whole 45 minute drive through the whole state, you know, there's not much more you can see. Um, and that's how I got to where I am. And it's been I've only been in the position less than three months, but it's it's been blissful. Wow. That's so exciting to hear. That's awesome. Thanks. Yeah, good time. So just to ask logistically, and I know you touched on it in terms of the different, you know, kind of aspects of the job that you do every day, but in in detail, like yeah. in terms of what are the hours of this job like working for this nonprofit? Are you expected to work on weekends are there you know yeah. other hours or things that you're expected to do that might be different from another job like the the day-to-day what does that look like for you yeah and so i can preface it non-covid times i had gotten to a place where i was like i need my job to see me as a human being i can't i can't be doing like absurd hours um i was finding myself doing a lot of work with the council and even with the state like mentally it was just taxing we're gonna let that motorcycle go by sorry philly things they everybody loves their dirt bikes over here it's a culture thing so embrace it guys the the day-to-day is nine to five and i stick to those hours as best as i can if i go over i better have a good reason because i'm trying to be more balanced and trying not to be so intense about the work i do because i am an overachiever and i can let that run my life and i'm trying to be balanced clock in at nine sometimes 8 30 but that's my business sometimes i leave at six but generally speaking i keep it between those hours the day-to-day they don't expect me to work weekends but i would i at this point it's too important to me i will not plug into a company that has a culture of like paying you not paying you for your labor it's it's too costly for my mental health and just for my my sanity overall the day-to-day looks like depending on the projects we're on it's a lot of project management which is a skill i honed 
over there, <laughs> picked up real quick and honed. Um, so a lot of research too, which I really enjoy when I have to do it and, and it actually informs my work. It's not research that I do and then pass up to somebody else. It's research I research and then I use it to like help people make decisions, make decisions for myself. Um, I still get to be plugged into politics and like I care who is the person, but it does not make or break my work. So I've had to learn um, bipartisanship is not a skill I was great at. Um, I'm learning it, guys. It's a slow crawl, slow crawl. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's what the day to day looks like. It's like the stuff I did as a like fellow. I research a bunch of bills and look up stuff and Excel. I read people's budgets and stuff like that. And then project management, because I there's a lot of projects we need to make sure in the pipeline and are moving in an efficient way. It worked out, guys. You bullshit enough, you'll end up somewhere. <laughs> well, it seems like you just have found a job where you can use all of your past experiences and now channel all of that, you know, in the direction that you want it yeah. to go. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful meeting of purpose and practicality which, oh, I love. I don't like those people that are like, this job is my passion, so I'll let them abuse me. Or these people that are like, I just am going to do this thing for this corporation, get to the end of the day, and it, who does it affect at the end yeah. of the day? So like, this feels like my perfect balance. Wow. Well, I'm so happy for you. That's awesome to hear. Thank you. Yeah. The, okay. The last thing that I would like to talk about is your podcast, which you started at the end of last year. It's called Take Space and Make Space. Yeah. Talk, talk to us about that. I started a podcast. I started a podcast in the middle of a the most challenging time in my life. It was just, um, for personal reasons, was horrible, just horrible. Uh, and I just could not find a space for my that was mine to take. Um, I'm like a black queer woman in America, an immigrant. <laughs> so like, ugh, not killing the game out here in the rooms that are made for me. So I was like, I'm just have to make one for myself because <laughs> uh, I can't, you know, can't wait for that. And I just created a space for me to just chat, learn about different people's experiences, trying to build community with people that have similar experiences or don't. Um, well, I've only recorded three podcasts and then, you know, life got, life started acting right up, but hopefully we'll be back to that. And I'm saying the title is Take Space and Make Space, correct? You added the and, it's Take Space, Make Space. Take Space, Make Space. Thank you very much. I listened to all three episodes. I think they're fantastic. I think everyone listening right now, as soon as you're done with this podcast, you should start listening to yours. Shameless plug and don't ask me for more episodes. I'll make some, I promise. I think they're great. You share a lot. Well, number one, I think it's interesting that given that it was a period of time where you, you know, you're saying that it was really difficult for you. A lot of people's first instinct would not be, let me go be very public about this and start a podcast. Yeah, I don't like to miss. I mean, there's a positive way to look at everything, and misery loves company. I'm trying to figure out who else is suffering too, man. I was like, who else? Who else? Um, no, it just felt good to be like, I can't be the only one going through this. This is not 
I'm special, but this experience is not unique. There are a lot of people going through this who look like me, who feel like me. And I just wanted to create community and I, I will get back to that. Um, and yeah, listen, or at least DM me on Instagram to make more. And then uh, my ability and my need to please people will make me do it again. So I want to ask you some things based on what you said in the podcast, because uh, I thought they were really interesting. So yeah. at one point, you say that you broke up your goals for this year into quarters of the year. So we just finished quarter one. Yeah. And in the podcast, you say that your goal in Q1 of this year was for more professional growth. Yeah. What came of that? Did did something Dude. big happen within Q1? I mean, you found this it job. Was, so that technically, that counts big time. Yeah, that that was me. Um, that was me censoring myself. I was really unhappy working the job I was. It was it was it was strenuous. I was doing the job of two people for two different organizations with two different expectations and two different cultures. I was trying to be polite about it, but my goal was to leave that job. I was in the interview process of this job when I made that podcast. So that my quarter one goal, thanks for reminding me, has been checked. Yeah, congrats. Yeah, thanks. You also said something really interesting. Uh, just a little bit ago about you're not interested in working somewhere that doesn't, you know, value you as a person, values you as just, you know, purely employee, purely someone who will be able to produce yeah. X amount of whatever you need to. How has it been for you through your entire, you know, work life, separating your professional life from your personal life? Yeah. I, I did a really good job at it before. And I think that's what makes you replaceable. And I've learned that now of like, I was showing up and I would, I would always do the thing I needed to do, but I never injected my humanity into it, which is really what matters, which is what makes you worth paying for, which is what makes you hard to replace. I always just came in, did the work, but now I I, I would show up as Winnie, which is like, if you heard the podcast, that's like the name I used to use. I used to be try to be as palatable as possible and just check my boxes. But now I show up as like Waja, black, queer woman. Like I have my shit. I care about yeah. the things I care about and it's gonna reflect in my work. Even when I'm looking at policy, I'm like, I, I, I'm looking at policy and how it affects people like me. And like, I, I, I state that in the work. Um, and, and that's really important is to show up to work as yourself. And that doesn't mean overshare guys. That doesn't mean like, be like, let me tell y'all about my things. It just means have your, your humanity reflected in the work. And I think you can do that even as like a data person, you know? Wow. Yeah. I think that's, at least for me, it's something that's really hard. And then, you know, I feel like most people don't know this specifically. And this is, it's the weirdest thing. I see this all the time on Twitter, uh, among campaign people, as yeah. soon as they get a new job, it's always, Hey, now in personal news and then the job. And like, yeah. while I understand that maybe the first time that happened, it was like kind of a bit like there is an actual distinction between professional life and personal life. And once you mesh those, while yes, there are certain jobs that you're pretty much just working all the time. Yeah. And like it does bleed into your personal life and there really is an A distinction. 
I don't know if that should be the goal. Like, I don't think that should be what everyone is trying to necessarily covet is to only have work where you have no separation between work you and, you know, the normal you because that's so unhealthy you have and you you have to have a separation and even when I say bring your humanity into it I mean like your experiences and your drive and your passion and the communities you care about but it does not mean like at 6 p.m you're still you know or whatever time is like it, it becomes your life you can't let work engulf you like you still have to be a human at the end of the day you still have to like interact with other people you have to put into your relationships you you can't be your job it's it's not balanced okay so final four questions what is the best job you've ever had the best job i've ever had maybe this job maybe maybe i really enjoyed like fellows though um the best job i've ever had babysitting i say that all the time does not reflect in my resume. If I didn't care about clout, social climbing, and money, I would absolutely be a babysitter for the rest of my life. Love kids. Best job I ever fucking had. Never. I, I just was gleeful every day. I would have done it for free. Really? <laughs> oh my god. I'm. I love. And I, I actually tell my coworkers that now. Like, if I didn't care about social climbing, I would. I would be a babysitter or a personal assistant. I love having a task list checking it off and caring about kids wow done easy wow that's really interesting that's how i got through college was babysitting yeah i wow found a, what age kids huh what age were the kids oh my god or was I, it like, like a was it like them, a daycare thing i saw them become you know teenagers uh one was four and the other one was maybe seven and we we like grew up together it's crazy best job I ever had like would do it again absolutely that's awesome so work-wise who are your biggest role models work-wise my biggest role models like do they have to be in jobs or can they just be like abstract people no just or this could be this could also be people that have either had paths careers have done certain things that you look at and you say Wow. At the end of all of this, I would like to have done a lot of the work that this person has done. So stereotypical and maybe I'll not stereotypical, but so predictable. But after Samantha Power, who was the UN, I forget. She was the United States UN ambassador under Barack Obama. Right. Phenomenal. Just the balance of being fucking good at your job, but also injecting your humanity into it. And I read the book and I was like, yeah, that's the goal. I don't think that's stereotypical at all, by the way. <laughs> we'll we'll see how many. <laughs> not, not in these circles we run in, Mike. We'll see how many interviews I do, and I will let you know how many people say Samantha Power. <laughs> I will let you know. I'm going to take a guess. It's just you. I don't, we'll see. You never we know. Will you see. might run into another me. We might. I don't know. Okay. What is your dream job? I think my dream job would be to start my own NGO, truly. Um, I, I want to go back to Kenya at some point and start a an orphanage. That is the 
I wouldn't even consider that a job. That is my, that is my end of day thing. That's what you're going to be doing at some point. You just don't know when. Yeah. Have no idea when, but that would be really cool. Obviously the thing about caring about community and those are skills I've learned of like how to start a nonprofit, how to run one, what all that good stuff and seeing it in my own country and helping out kids. Again, the babysitting thing makes more sense now. So yeah, that, that feels like, that feels like a good answer. Final question. So we had already talked a little bit about how your goal for Q1 of this year was, you know, professional growth. What is now a new goal, but what's one thing professionally that you really are trying to do within the next year? Own my process. I want to own my process. I am lucky enough to be in a new department, so there's not a lot of precedent, which I really appreciate because it gives me room to be creative. And I want to own my own process and be confident in it. Um, that's that's my goal for the next quarter is to do that. Well, good luck. I think it's going to happen. We're, you're already you're riding a high right now, so I, there's no reason why it's not going to happen. Um, and also, yeah, thank, thank you me. so much for taking the time to do this podcast. I had a great time talking to you. Thank you for you. entertaining me and my little story. <laughs> Always. You can come back every time. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, for sure. When somebody else has to do the editing big time, I'll come back. <laughs> All right, Wajah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Have All a great right. rest of your day. You too. Bye. Welcome to the follow-up. So I don't know how big a fan everyone else is of Brene Brown, but I was listening to a podcast she was on recently where one of her biggest pieces of advice to young people is that nothing is wasted. And after listening to Waja talk about her journey so far, that was 100% reaffirmed for me. I'm sure everyone has had jobs or taken classes that felt like a massive waste of time because while you were doing them, you had no context for the significance of the work. I mean, I can guarantee that when Waja was traversing the foothills of Pennsylvania, she was not thinking, wow, when I work at a nonprofit where it's my job to reach out to people in disadvantaged communities to try and help them attain benefits, Everything I'm learning will be super helpful. It's the same way I remember dreading going into shifts at Target because I knew that I was going to have to stand in the same place and try to convince strangers to sign up for a Target red card for the next eight hours. But I can say that that job was where I learned how to code switch and where I learned how to build some type of relationship with a stranger in 20 seconds and in my experience, that's honestly like 80% of being a field organizer. So I hope that everyone can take away that while you might feel stuck in what you're doing now, I know that once you get started in the work you want to be doing, you will be using all of your previous experiences in order to do it. And one more time, I would like to plug Waja's podcast, Take Space, Make Space, which is available wherever podcasts are found. And like she said, the more people that start to get interested in the podcast, the more episodes she will start to make. So please, for the benefit of us all, I really encourage you to check out her podcast. It's an even more in-depth insight into Waja and everything that she has going on in her life. So I really hope you go check it out. Also, 
I would like to reiterate that this podcast officially endorses paying interns. And with that, I want to plug a group that I think does amazing work to bring awareness to that issue. Pay Our Interns is a D.C.-based nonprofit that is leading the fight for an increase in the amount of paid internships across all work sectors. Co-founded by Carlos Mark Vera and Guillermo Kramer Jr., Pay Our Interns has had Congress pass more than $31 million in funding for interns and has also helped nonprofits, companies, and presidential campaigns create internship programs. You can check out more about them and even donate to help the cause at payourinterns.org. And you can also find them on Twitter at payourinterns. I'd also like to thank our sponsors. Thank you to the Crystal Casino Band for letting us use their amazing song, Luck, as music for the show. If you're into their vibe, please go check out more of them on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to your music. I'd also like to thank the Liability on the Mic podcast, which is hosted by Liz Evans and Carmen Kerrigan. Liability on the Mic features the rock-solid, grounded-in-reality musings of two Midwestern Gen Z millennial cusp queens. Check out Liability on the Mic wherever you get your podcasts. One final thing. Before we wrap up here, I have a favor to ask. If you thought of anyone while listening to this episode because they're in school to do this, or you just think that they would find it interesting, please send it to them. The goal here is to help as many different people as possible learn about as many different careers and paths as possible. So if you would like to help out that mission, I would greatly appreciate it. Please also feel free to reach out at Starting Somewhere Pod on Instagram and at Starting Pod on Twitter. Thank you to everyone who listened to this episode, and I hope you have a great rest of your day.